What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar with a little bonus content this week. My interview with director Riley Stearns. Stearns is the writer-director of the new film, The Art of Self-Defense, currently playing in limited release. It's a dark comedy set in the world of a karate dojo led by Alessandro Nivola's eccentric sensei. Jesse Eisenberg is the victim of a violent crime, which has him seeking out self-defense classes, Imogen Poots co-stars. Self-Defense is Stern's second feature film. His debut was 2014's Faults, about a man hired to deprogram a young woman after she joins a cult. Mary Elizabeth Winstead and the great character actor Leland Orser star in that one. That movie should have been a Golden Brick contender back in 2015 had we managed to see it. The Art of Self-Defense definitely is a Brick contender this year. Let's hear some of the trailer for the film and then get into my interview. I'm taking my first class today. Your new white belt? Is that the first belt color? White is before color. You haven't earned color yet. Today's lesson. To kick with your fists and punch with your feet. That makes perfect sense. Good. There's a mental component as well. Everything should be as masculine as possible. You may want to start on those reports. That pile is getting awfully high in I won't be petting you anymore. This is for your own good. What's your favorite style of music? Adult contemporary. No. Should be metal. Riley, I was re-watching some scenes of the movie today. I'm going to resist the urge to do the Chris Farley thing where I just quote back to you the funniest lines in the movie. Like, pretty much everything. <laughs> the, that could be fun, though. It could be. Uh, but everything the guy who tries to sell Jesse Eisenberg's character a gun says is is hilarious. I'm actually going to throw out some questions, though. And start by saying, in addition to that homework, I watched your debut feature, Faults, which, tragically we overlooked here on the show in 2015. I regret that now. And I certainly see some connections in terms of style and tone, but also subject. And here are just a few things I jotted down. The karate dojo is a bit like a cult, right? People interacting intensely within a confined space. And there's a lot of rules written and unwritten. There's a sensei, a leader and pupils and wisdom that's being dispensed and shared. There's a fair amount of manipulation emotionally and psychologically. And we also see characters having these personal breakthrough moments. And here, when you move on to another level, you get a belt instead of reaching another plane of existence. But I'm (laughs) I'm guessing that the cult aspect wasn't specifically uh, what interests you, but more the idea that's really explicitly at the core of faults of, of control, of being in control of yourself and your choices and controlling others. Yeah, um, the the feeling of of manipulation and and like mind control and and like you said, just the rules of it all. Like those those were topics that I was still fascinated by and and knew that I wanted to touch on. And I thought that faults uh, the 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 idea behind that movie is that that somebody starts in a bad place, uh, ends up in a worse place, but thinks they're in a better place. That mm. was that was the I, like the structure of it for me. And this time around, I wanted to. Like, I knew I was dealing with something a little bit more, um, I don't know, uh, positive. Uh, even though it gets very, very dark, I knew that I wanted the the feel of it uh, at the end of the movie to feel different than false. And so, yeah, it's, it's a different movie in a lot of ways and explored different ideas at the same time. But 
I do think that there's some similarities in there. And it must have just been that I didn't totally get the, the cult and, and mind control uh, elements out of my head. Uh, uh, so so needed to touch on them one more time. Mm-hmm. Am I crazy, too, or do they both open with lead characters being humiliated in cafes? What do you have against small diners? It's funny. I actually think that uh, I wanted to kind of nod or give a nod towards faults in the way that that film opened. But I also mainly, mainly really like the idea of starting a movie in a way that might be unrelated to the plot, but definitely tells you something about your lead character. Yeah. And faults is, is basically that you get to a sense that this person is, uh, is on the outs, uh, that they have nothing left in life and that they're just kind of a scavenger and, and that they've lost all bit of dignity. And, and with self-defense, it was that, that this character, uh, because he's being made fun of and you realize that he kn- knows exactly what they're saying to him, that he's just so inactive and incapable of calling people out and, and just, uh, yeah, takes, takes everything, whatever life throws out of me takes it and doesn't really give anything back. So I, I like to, to tell us something about the character without necessarily needing it to be plot related. Mm-hmm. There's another direct nod to faults too, which I, appreciated, which is Leland Orser, of course, the star of Faults, pops up in the TV show scene that we watch. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's watching a film or a made-for-TV movie halfway through the movie, and uh, I asked Leland if he would come in and, and be our, our detective in that film, and uh, he said, didn't even, I didn't even have to, like, ask uh, twice, he, he just immediately was like, yes, wherever you need me, I'm, I'm there. And uh, I love that guy so much. Yeah. And I, I want to yeah. be able to work with him again in a, in a bigger context again uh, at some point down the line. So I know that you practice martial arts, specifically jujitsu, and that you attribute positive changes in your life to it. I wouldn't necessarily describe this movie as a karate movie. It's more of a vehicle to get at you know, some of the things we talked about, like this notion of control and, of course, toxic masculinity, too, as a concept in this movie. But since you do have that respect for martial arts, I'm curious if you worried at all about the response to the film from people within that community, because that dark comic or satirical approach in art obviously easily can be misunderstood and sometimes can provoke a lot of anger. Like, I imagine most karate senseis believe or want to believe they're nothing like the sensei Alessandro Nivola plays here, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're all in on the joke. Yeah, I, I, um, I definitely didn't want to make a film that was making fun of anybody, uh, but I do think that it's okay to poke fun at things. Uh, I'm such an avid uh, practitioner of jiu-jitsu. I, I do it every day. I'm like five days a week at least. Uh, and so I feel like there's this sense of because I do it, I can poke fun at it a little bit. I'm definitely not uh, trying to uh, tell people that karate is bad or that it's that this is real in any way, shape or form. I think even if you watch the movie and you walk away thinking that I made fun of karate and that I made it look bad, then I think that you weren't really watching the movie to begin with. Because there's so many other things in the film that happen, so many stylized moments uh, and, and things that set it apart from the real world uh, where it's obvious it's a film. It's, it's not it's not trying to be a. Uh, uh, a promotional tool for karate or, or by that same token, it's not trying to tell people that every school is going to be run like this cult. Um, but I, I do get responses from people on Twitter here and there, people DMing me on Instagram saying that, that no karate school would ever teach this type of uh, methodology. And, and I kind of am like, yeah, yeah. So like, that's not the point of the movie for me, but uh, it was never really a concern. And, and I do think that 
whether it's the karate or whether it's me kind of poking fun at the metal community, being a fan of metal myself, or even just poking fun at dachshunds and, and how they're not masculine dogs. I own a dachshund. It's like, <laughs> like that, that it, if you can't poke fun at yourself and your interests, uh, uh, then, then what can you do? Yeah, exactly. It's all coming from a place of love. And as unrealistic as it might be, I think of the moment early in the film where we see Casey, Jesse Eisenberg's character, standing in front of his mirror at home in his gear, and he does a move, and it, it seems like it feels good to him, and then he goes to class, and he gets that positive response, that affirmation from Sensei, and you can see how intoxicating that is. Do you remember yourself having moments like that? Do you still have moments like that in jujitsu? I have moments like that every day. And I feel like uh, I even I went and trained today this morning uh, prior to this. And I even had a moment like that today where, where my, uh, I mean, for jujitsu, oftentimes your coach or the owner of the school, the black belt there is called professor. And it kind of goes back to the Brazilian roots of, of the sport. But uh, my professor walked by at that exact moment that I was doing something wrong and he showed me this one little thing that would help make it right and not only make it right, but make it better. And then when I was able to execute it later on while I was rolling, while I was actually sparring with somebody and he saw me do that, that's a, this, like, it's almost like you made your dad smile or, or like your dad said, uh, like he's never hugged you in his entire life, but gives you that one hug and tells you, uh, yeah, you, you, did, you did good, son. Like that, that's one of those moments that, uh, or that's what it feels like for me. And, and I think that that's why I love doing uh, what I do. I love making movies. I love training jujitsu. I feel like you're always learning. You're always uh, getting better. And uh, that, that positive reinforcement mm. is definitely uh, a fun thing. Yeah. Here's where I'd love to go off on a tangent about how I see a similarity between that smile on Jesse's face there and the smile on Leland Orser's face in a certain key moment in Faults. But we've talked about that movie enough, and I don't want to spoil that movie for anyone out there who hasn't seen it. So back to this film, there is a moment where a student even comments on it specifically how much testosterone there is in the dojo and of course in the film then as a whole Imogen Poots's character is the only woman and as much as it is about masculinity this film and a critique of a certain type of masculinity I was really struck by how you draw attention to at least what seemed to me the intimacy between the men the physicality of some of the moves and I think the scene where Casey walks into the locker room for the first time and we see two of the men in their underwear practicing certain techniques basically on each other's backs and when the blue belt character befriends Casey and he helps put his belt on we see Casey's kind of startled reaction to the man touching him that way and so that that dichotomy of toughness and and touching a vulnerability, it seems to me, Casey's dilemma in a way, but it's also something inherent to karate, to martial arts. To martial arts, yeah. I, I, it's, it's so funny that it's, it's considered to be this, like, tough guy sport, especially MMA, like mixed martial arts, jiu-jitsu. Uh, you, know, you train with a lot of people who are very overtly masculine and uh, like jocks and you train with people who are not, but they're the one thing that happens on your very first day is that you're going to realize that you're going to be in very close physical contact with people. And almost always it's going to be other men because even in real, in the real world, like in the movie, there's only one woman at this dojo, but in the real world, you may train at a place where uh, most days there aren't women there. And then every once in a while, like one or two girls join the class and, and that's just kind of the norm. And it's, it's just, the, the way that it's, it's always kind of been, uh, but you're going to get into a position like in jujitsu, my very first class I ever took, uh, you, I laid on my back and I put my legs around somebody's waist who's on their knees. 
and I put them in my guard. And being in somebody's guard, it, it's very weird the very first time. You're, you, you've, I've seen it in mixed martial arts. I've seen it in fighting before. But when you're actually in that position, it, it's not a normal place that you would be uh, at in, in everyday life. But it's so funny how fast that changes in your mind when you realize what this means. Like when you're in this position, you're protecting yourself from getting uh, beaten to death in a fight or you're protecting, uh, or you're keeping somebody at bay until somebody else is going to come and help you. And, and once you start putting it into that perspective of what it would be in real life, that, that weird um, feeling of, of that intimacy goes away and you, you realize that it's more of uh, a self-defense thing. It's more mm-hmm. of survival. And, and so all that stuff goes out the door eventually. But yeah, that, that initial feeling of, of intimacy is, is interesting to say the least. Have you seen Christian Petzold's film from this year, Transit? I have not, no. Okay, really interesting film and an interesting anachronism of a film based on various factors. It seems clear the movie must be set in the 1940s, but then you see certain technology or signposts that suggest it could be the present day or at least closer to it. It's deliberately enigmatic that way. And I don't think your movie is necessarily quite as inscrutable, but there is a vagueness and a mystery to the setting in terms of the production design. There's not a lot of indicators for us to latch on to about who these characters are really, what they do, what year it is even, where they live. I mean, if I hadn't read that it was shot in Louisville, I would never have guessed that or attached the characters to that city. And I don't know if it makes sense to say or it's accurate to say it feels almost a little sci-fi in that approach. But for me, it definitely heightens the absurdity of the story and makes it all feel a little bit more like a parable. Is that what you were after? The idea was to make it feel like its own world, uh, first and foremost, and mm-hmm. I think that that's where the sci-fi element might come into people's minds, is that it just doesn't feel like our world, and that rules are slightly different. Nothing is to the, fantastic to the point where you don't believe these characters are real, or you don't believe that they, they're like uh, their motivations, or, or they don't feel like real people at all, but I did want them to kind of feel different than the space that we ourselves live in. Uh, The time period is supposed to be more of just like this timeless, arbitrary um, space where cell phones don't exist, internet doesn't exist, and technology tends to span eras and decades and and different devices. And and it really, it was two things uh, in particular. It was mainly to uh, to let it feel more like its own world, like it, it exists in its own in its own space and territory. But also, I didn't want people 10 years from now to watch the movie and say that they knew exactly when it was made. Mm-hmm. It was more important for me to some, for somebody to watch the movie and just feel like it was timeless. Like it, it could be, it could have been made uh, that year, or it could have been made 20 years ago, and it didn't really matter. Um, but it's funny how many people have been asking me why I said it in the 90s and Q&As. And and that wasn't my intention, but uh, I think people so desperately want to be able to kind of put those pieces together and figure out when something was or or where it takes place that they they tend to kind of look for things that kind of uh, that that support a certain time frame. But the original intent was just for it to be kind of in its own uh, uh, timeless period. Yeah, I said I wasn't going to bring up faults again. And of course, it's a completely different type of mixture of reality and fantasy, I suppose, and that there's at least a hint of something supernatural or the potential for something supernatural. But is that that mixture and that kind of hybrid of reality and fantasy something that you're drawn to? Uh, for this movie especially, Faults, I, I did always think of it as just ever so slightly hyper-real in the way that people talk, but for the most part, I do think it took place in our world. It was just the mid-80s. It was, it was around the time of deprogrammings, whereas 
This one, I really wanted it to feel like its own world. And part of the fun of that is being able to decide what can or can't happen in that world. And I've created all the rules prior to writing, and I, I never want to break those rules as you're going along and, and switching it up arbitrarily so that the audience, like kind of tricking the audience into this false insecurity and then saying, oh, never mind, I know something was going to, I told you something would happen this way, but now I'm changing the rules and it can happen this way. That's not good storytelling for me, so I definitely wanted to, to have the rules be set in stone, but the way that we doled out that information to the audience uh, was a little slower. And, and more deliberate. Uh, and, and in our self-defense, things can happen in that world that wouldn't happen in this world. Uh, and mainly, it's just it's fun to be able to uh, it's fun to be able to be cinematic, and it's fun to be able to do things that that wouldn't really happen. But um, but never going so far that it took you out of it, or you couldn't relate to the characters. Yeah. Speaking of being cinematic, Jesse Eisenberg was very complimentary about working with you, commenting that he knew how every shot was going to be used in the movie and why you were doing each take, why the camera was where it was. And I was curious, I certainly sensed the purpose behind every shot here as well and in faults, but would love to hear more about how you approach, how that approach applies directly to your actors. Is it something when you're on set you're conscious of and you want to make sure is clear to your talent, or is it more of a byproduct of how you work? Uh, the way that I shot list is pretty rudimentary. Uh, I, I, I have a good idea going into the day of what I need to get for the scene, but it's almost always I, like I'll have 20 setups written down for before lunch. And you know, realistically, that you don't have time to get all of those setups, but at least that's like my starting point of that's what I, in an ideal world, that's what I would like to get for this scene. And whether or not I'm going to use all those shots later on in the edit is another question. But I, I, if I could, that's what I would do. But inevitably, you get there on the day and either the, the set is different than you imagined it or the actors do something differently with their blocking than you kind of anticipated. I think that it's more important to be ready to improvise as a director once you get to set, especially in an indie space where time is of the essence. And really just get down to what exactly do you need, what's going to make or break the scene, and, uh, and do so in a way that, that, that makes sense. And I think that that's why the actors always kind of felt like they knew where we were, what we were doing, why we were doing something. I think that if, if people are on the same page, that it, it just like streamlines the process and it makes it simpler. If they're wondering why they're going to be in a shot when, or sorry, why they're going to be on set while they're not in the shot, and then they start... Uh, I don't know, doing that with every scene that you do. They're like, well, where am I in this? Or what, what's happening in this thing? I'm kind of lost. That's only going to slow things down. So it's better for everyone to be on the same mm-hmm. page. But uh, I'm, I'm so uh, regimented in the way that I write and the way that I uh, kind of have the actors perform dialogue that it's nice to have that, that improvisational feel with the way that I shoot things. Yeah. I mentioned off the top the lines from the gun shop owner and how much I thought they were hilarious. And what makes them so funny is that he's pointing out all of these facts about gun ownership that should be alarming in the context of selling someone a gun. They are highly ironic, but the character himself never acknowledges that irony or that that disconnect. That for me is really where the the humor comes from. And that's really true of almost every character in the film, probably. How did you take that? I can imagine that written on the page and how you heard it in your head and how you envisioned it coming out. But how do you take that from the page to the screen? Because I feel like any actor's instinct in that moment would be to act that irony or to note the humor in some way. 
Well, I'll, I'll say two things about that. The first thing is that that was a very interesting scene to shoot because we were shooting in an actual gun store with about 10 employees who worked at that gun store just on their day off, deciding that they wanted to come in and watch a Hollywood movie being shot. And it had the guy from Social Network in it. And that's all they knew. Uh, and little did they know that we were going to be saying these lines uh, about and facts, like you said, they are facts yes. about gun ownership and that are kind of horrifying. Uh, and I was so in my own head about what that was going to be like. And, and I was worried about Davey having to say these lines in front of these people. And I didn't want to offend anybody. But I remember it was Jesse who came over to me and said, what, like, are you worried? And I was like, yeah, I'm a little worried about it, how it's going to feel. And he goes, well, they're facts. And I was like, yeah, but the, the facts are kind of uncomfortable. And he goes, but Riley, they're facts. And I think that that was important for me to hear uh, and, and think, okay, well, it's okay. It's, it's like, we are here for a reason. We're making this, this movie and it's saying certain things, but uh, it's not making fun of anybody. It's just saying these facts. And I do think that that's kind of how we treated uh, the performance for all the actors was, was going in and saying to this character, what they are saying is fact. They're not sugarcoating anything. Their opinion uh, is, is all that's on their mind. And so when, when an actor says something in the film, they believe it. And I think if we ever winked or nodded uh, in the way that the, the lines were delivered or, or to the audience, I think that the, the humor would be lost. So for me, it was more important for the characters to believe what they're saying and not find anything ridiculous in what they're saying. And then as an audience, we can determine that that's funny. We don't need to be handheld and told that something's funny to laugh at something. So yeah. we just we went about it in a very earnest way. And I think that the characters themselves are earnest as well. Grandmaster is the only person ever to wear the rainbow belt. It's a belt color that he created and awarded to himself. It is the highest honor in all of karate. He achieved this rank after he challenged and defeated all three other grandmasters in the state in unarmed combat to the death. He finished each fight with his signature technique, technique only he knew, technique he never even taught me. He punched through his opponent's heads with his index finger. He was the greatest man who ever lived. I imagine there are moments with an actor that you may have to modulate that just a little bit in the moment. Yeah, yeah. Like there, there, there's a scene in particular where I remember an actor doing something that got a huge laugh from the crew and even myself. And, but I had to go over there and it's a weird position to be in and saying that worked really well on the stage and, and around everybody. And it, it, it was funny, but it wasn't funny for the movie. It wasn't right for the movie. And being able to to do that is, is a, a tricky space to be in, but it's also very important. And, and I, I always was conscious of our tone overall and that there, it's a tightrope that we were walking in, in terms of like, it, as funny as it, some of these lines are, if you say them as if they're funny, if you believe that they're funny, then it's not going to be funny for the audience. So it was a tricky thing, but it was, it's the space that I love working in. And, and that balance is always fun for me to kind of like straddle. Yeah. I want to close with the film spotting five. It's uh, kind of our rapid fire end to interviews here where I would love to just kind of go back through some of the movies you love and movies that were influences, but start with the question, what was the last movie you saw in the theater that wasn't your own? Uh, last movie I saw in the theater was The Farewell uh, the other day. And a fan, generally, of the film? 
Oh, yes, very much so. I loved it. And I uh, am so excited that Lulu is getting uh, the attention that she rightly deserves for this movie. And it would be shocking to me if it wasn't uh, on everyone's lips at the end of the year. It's such a good film. What about a movie that you revisited recently? Revisited? Uh, Well, it's not necessarily revisit for my own reasons. I I went and did a podcast uh, called screen drafts uh, and I invited my friend Brian Cogman to be a part of that. He's a Game of Thrones, former Game of Thrones writer. And it would where you make a list of movies uh, and we made our list of the definitive Disney 2D animation films. So I went back and revisited a lot of 2D Disney animated films, including I hadn't seen Beauty and the Beast or, or uh, Little Mermaid since I was a little kid. And just, yeah, Little Mermaid was, was surprising at just how much it held up. Uh, and I, I couldn't remember the last time I watched it, but that was the first movie I ever saw in a theater. And then I'm watching it again now in my living room as an adult, and it works in so many different ways than you think of as a kid. Really? So that, that, that would probably be the one that I would say. Yeah, I'd like to revisit both of those. I don't think I've seen The Little Mermaid since my sisters were very little a long time ago. What about a random film or filmmaker you love? Random? Oh, random. random like, I, I love the, like, what comes to mind first. Uh, so I was at my agency yesterday and got in the elevator with my agent, and then another agent walked in, and he, uh, my agent introduced me to him and said, oh, you, do you know Andrew, uh, Andrew Brzezowski? Uh, and I was like, oh, yeah, I love, love his stuff. Uh, so I would say him, Computer Chess, is one of those movies that I think flew under the radar yeah. when it first came out. And it's so inventive in the way that it's shot and directed, uh, but I love that movie so much. So Computer Chess. Yeah, great recommendation. What about a movie you credit with becoming a filmmaker? Uh, man, that's a good one. I would say the one that really influenced the short that may help me figure out my voice was this Greek film called L, just the letter, letter L. Uh, that one I, I saw at Sundance in 2012 and I went to a midnight showing of it. Most of the audience fell asleep because it was not only really late, but the film is very deliberate and challenges you. And I was very tired, but I adored that film so much and tracked it down on DVD years later and it held up in different ways. But it's, it's not a film for everybody, but L by Babis McCritis. Okay, great recommendation there. Finally, a favorite book about movies or movie making. We have a lot of listeners who are aspiring filmmakers or maybe just starting out. Do you have any recommendations on that front? Uh, yeah, I am trying to think of the name of it. Uh, What's Easy Riders and Raging Bulls? Yeah, the Biskin book. Yeah, that Biskin book, it, that was one that I remember reading and just being, I, I was so into kind of that era of filmmaking and, and uh, I, I felt like it, it, it was a peek behind the curtain that I hadn't cut, quite gotten yet in terms of I didn't have an agent. I was still trying to figure out what my voice was as a writer, but knowing like that there were all these stories in there that were really probably never talked about until they were in this book. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also end up reading a lot of books that are just in interviews with directors. And there's this book called my first movie. I want to say that not every passage by every, uh, about every filmmaker's first uh, movie in that is great, but the ones that are great are really great. So like the Coen brothers talking about them making blood simple, uh, just like blew me away. And there's other ones that are probably in there that are incredible too, that aren't coming to mind. But yeah, I would say easy writers and raging bulls and my first movie. Yeah. 
good picks that uh, that one, the last one anyway, has never been mentioned on the show before. So thank you for that. And thank you, Riley Stern, so much for your time. Definitely recommend the film. Enjoyed it and wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. You should have never started taking karate. You can't be weak anymore. I'm interested in buying a gun. I need something that can fit into my hand. Sounds like you're after a handgun. My thanks again to Riley Stearns for that conversation. A reminder that you can find previous interviews over at filmspotting.net. Just click on interviews at the top of the page. And all of those film spotting fives, we've done... Seven to ten of them now, I believe. Those can also be found over at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists to get those. The Art of Self-Defense is currently out in limited release, including here in Chicago. In our normal Friday podcast slot, Josh and I return for a full show. We will have a review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, plus our top ten Quentin Tarantino characters. So look forward to that one. For Film Spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.